Welcome to Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast, brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, one of the oldest nature spirituality churches in the United States, connecting people of nature-centered paths around the world. Join us through the week for a variety of shows discussing various topics, celebrating the divine in all of its forms, through nature worship, rituals, education, and building bridges of community. Good evening, good morning, good night, good second breakfast, whenever you are, wherever you are. My name is Laura Gonzalez, and I'd like to welcome you to Lunatic Mondays on CSMP, the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast. Tonight, I have a guest that I'm, I can't wait to start talking to him because this book is amazing. But anyway, I have uh, Jack Chanick here. He's a Garnerian Wiccan priest and the author of Kabbalah for Wiccans and Terror for Real Life. He has taught workshops on tarot, Kabbalah, and Wicca around the country, as well as the festivals, uh, I'm sorry, as well as the festivals such as Free Spirit Gathering and Llewellyn Khan. He lives in New Jersey, where he works as an academic philosopher specializing in Immanuel Kant's philosophy of science. And you can find everything about him on www jack of one's tarot at wordpress.com uh welcome jack i didn't even ask you if i pronounced your name correctly i hope i did you did you got it perfect all right so and of course the book that we are going to be talking about hello this is laura gonzalez priestess of the goddess uh queen of all witcheries i cannot a big shout out to marcus uh on llewellyn because they're very generous, Llewellyn, Jack, and they send me all these books. And I don't believe on free stuff just because. And he told me, I really recommend this book. Why don't you interview Jack? Because I was going to bring you for the tarot book. And he told me, no, 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 wait for this one. It's coming up. And I'm like... <laughs> Okay, let's see. And then I got the book and I like literally like just vacuumed it into my head. So the book is Queen of All Witcheries, a biography of the goddess. Before we get into that, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so, so much for having me. And for those who don't know, of course, you are a professional tarot reader. You are an academic Um and a great researcher for what I've seen in this book. But tell us a little bit about your life. How did you get into witchcraft? Yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of a winding road. Um, I grew up in an aggressively non-religious household. My father was raised Catholic. He was angry about that until the day he died. Uh, and so I grew up in a house where Religion, spirituality, you know, we just weren't those kinds of people. That was something that people over there did. Um, and around the time that I left home and, and started college, I started to realize that I really wanted spirituality in my life. I, I really needed that, like the mythology and the symbolism and the ritual of it. And, you know, I wanted like dancing naked under the full moon. Um, so I went to college and I was living in 
just like this tiny, tiny little town in Southern France. Not a whole lot of people around, not a whole lot of like spiritual community for me to explore. So I was kind of doing my own thing for quite a while. Um, and then when I moved to New York uh, in my early 20s, I found a Gardnerian Wiccan coven uh, and I reached out to them and I've been with them ever since. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's sort of the short version of, of how I came into it. But, you know, I had started reading tarot when I was a kid. I started reading tarot when I was like 11 years old yeah. and my parents kind of rolled their eyes, but didn't have a problem with it. And it was through tarot that I got more interested in um, divination and magic and spirituality and just the way that all of these things come together. Yeah. I love tarot. And of course, I I promised myself that we were going to talk about tarot a little bit and obviously about your book, uh, Tarot for Every Day. Uh, tarot for Real Life. Tarot for Real Life. I'm sorry. I kind of forgot the name. But um, how rewarding it is to read tarot and to bring it to real life and to understand that the woo-woo part of tarot is there's no woo-woo you know it's like mm -hmm. everyday experiences yeah well and it's I mean look if you if you want to use tarot as something really woo-woo right you can you can go to distant places with it but you can also just use tarot in a very like practical grounded down-to-earth way um and I think that's something that especially for people who are just starting out with tarot they don't always realize that right yeah. they think that tarot has to be like all about your spiritual development and it's the major arcana and it's the big archetypes of the human soul and that's all great but sometimes you just want to know like am I gonna get the job and tarot can do that and that's fantastic yeah, yeah. and the one thing that I always tell my clients um Obviously, for those who don't know, I'm a professional tarot reader, so please put me to work so I can keep doing this free podcast, um, <laughs> you know, tarot by, tarot by Laura Gonzalez. But um, what I tell my clients, and I have great uh, satisfaction every time I say this, like, I'm not going to predict your future because you're making your future, you know, but let's ask what is the most likely possibility, you know, what could happen most likely and um, to not be afraid, you know, there's so many people who are afraid of tarot and there's nothing to be afraid. It's just, it's, it's a book. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, like people make choices and the choices that we make shape our future. And a thing that you can do in a tarot reading is you sit down and you say, okay, let's take a really honest look at the choices that you've been making mm -hmm. and what kind of path those are leading you down. And, and is this the path that you want to be going down? And if it's not, how do we make different choices to take you to where you want to go? Exactly. Okay. Sometimes I wonder if people fear tarot because like they say, I don't want to know my future. That's why I'm afraid. But I think deep down we all know it's like, I'm afraid to face my choices. I'm afraid to face what I've been doing, you know, and I don't know if you're familiar with this information that I'm going to give you, but uh, on the Latin community, the Mexican, Mexican-American and other Latin uh, people were very superstitious, very, very superstitious. This is an uh, inheritance from colonization. And a lot of people go to somebody else's doing the harm to me. It's not my choice. It's not, um, I'm not accountable for that and I love how tarot 
dismantles all that and tells you like, no, it's about your choices. You have the control. It's not Johnny and it's not Louise. It's you, you know, so wonderful. So you started reading Tarot at 11. Where? With whom? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, Yeah, I I started reading Tarot very young. Um, uh, My parents were big James Bond fans. And there's a Bond movie from the 70s where Jane Seymour plays a tarot reader. And I just thought this was the coolest thing. So I begged my parents to buy me a tarot deck. And, you know, we went to the bookstore and got me like a Rider Waite Smith clone. And the guy behind the counter at the bookstore was like, now you have to keep it wrapped in black silk or it's not going to work. And I didn't have any black silk around, but, you know, I... (laughs) I had, I think I had like a yellow polyester handkerchief from like a magic tricks for kids book. So I, you know, very ceremoniously wrapped up my tarot cards. And when I was, when I was starting out as a kid, a lot of it was very sort of unstructured and free. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of just messing around. Um, but then I, I worked with that deck frivolously for a little while. And then I got my hands on a French playing deck. Um, and these are cards, it's kind of like a poker deck, right? It it just has like diamonds, clubs, spades, and hearts, and it has one extra face card in each suit, and then it has a set of 22 trump cards that are used for the game, the the jeu de tarot des français, Um, and so it's not, it it doesn't read like a divinatory deck, Mm -hmm. Um, and when I started working with that, I had to actually know what the cards meant, because I, I didn't have any pictures to go off of, so I got a couple of books and I started reading and I learned all of the card meanings so that when I pulled my like five of spades that didn't have any pictures on it, I could have an understanding of like what that card means in context. And it was kind of an idiosyncratic way of learning how to read tarot because I really learned without card imagery and, and learning to use imagery and intuition came much later for me. Uh, but it was also so good because it really forced me to learn how to look at the reading as a whole, right? It's not just that you have the ace of wands over in this position. It's that you have the ace of wands here and you have the three and four of wands over there, but the two of wands isn't anywhere in the reading. What does that tell us? Well, like, what does it tell us that we have these cards and not those cards? And how does it look when we have like all of the fours on the left-hand side of the reading? And, you know, and, and those are sorts of like positional and structural things that I think um, I learned to use very early on because I didn't have the card imagery to help guide me. And that mm-hmm. continues to shape the way that I work as a reader. That is wonderful. I, I started very young myself, but you bit me, you bit me by five years. I started, <laughs> I started at 16 and, and never looked back, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that is wonderful. But anyway, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm like a child that is uh, doing the, Delayed gratification, but enough. Let's talk about the book, The Queen of All Witcheries, a biography of the goddess that had just come out not too long ago, like a month ago. Um, and I love that you start the book with, you might hate the book, but I want you to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I really, well, I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing, destroying what you wrote, but um, how atrevido, how you say that in English, and um, how daring 
how daring to actually touch this great white horses and and do the thing i admire that a lot so tell us a little bit about what the book is about the goddess obviously but tell us a little bit about the book yeah well so when we say the goddess um it we we sort of have a particular figure in mind right when we talk about the goddess we think of her as Mother Nature, she's associated with the moon. A lot of the time she's associated with motherhood and some people think of her as a triple goddess, maiden mother crone. Uh, she's associated with magic and spell casting. A lot of the time she's associated with art and creativity. And like, and that's a very particular goddess that I've just described, right? That's, that's not the same goddess at, well, depending on your theology, but like the things that we associate with goddess, the language that we use to describe her is not the same as the language that we use to describe other goddesses from anywhere in the world, right? It's not the same as the language we use to describe European goddesses like the Morrigan. It's not the same as the language we would use to describe the Hindu goddesses like Parvati. It's not the same language that we would use to describe Orishas. Like it's, we, we have a very particular image in mind when we talk about the goddess in scare quotes. And that's really fascinating to me because we all sort of know who this goddess is, right? Well, maybe not everyone who's listening to this does, but a, a lot of people who are in spiritual communities who are in paganism or witchcraft or, or whatever, we have a sense of who the goddess is. But when we really drill down on it, the way that we talk about the goddess is so unique. It's so different from the way that we would talk about any particular goddess in the world. So this book is about like, where does all that language come from? We have this, this particular goddess who exists in the world, who we worship, who we you know interact with. And we have this way that we're accustomed to thinking about and talking about her. And where do we get all that language? Um, because you can't really find it anywhere in the ancient world or anywhere in world mythology. So where does it come from? And so the book starts with uh, about like the mid 1800s and it looks at the development of uh, how we come to know the goddess, how the goddess sort of comes to make herself known in the world today. And the, the thinkers and the practitioners and the religious and magical movements that all come together to give us a language with which to describe and understand and interact with this modern goddess. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a little bit of history. It's a little bit of devotion. It's a little bit of like my personal stories about my experiences with the goddess. Uh, and all of those things together are meant to help us have sort of a better understanding of who this goddess is and where she comes from. Absolutely. And I love it because you reintroduce some of us and then introduce some that who've never heard of these texts. Um, and I'm not going to talk about the all of the texts. People need to buy the book. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoy the the first one that you kind of like dissect is uh, Matter Right by Johann Jacob Bakofen, mm -hmm. if that is uh, how you pronounce it. And what struck me, me being Mexican, being Mesoamerican, being indigenous, um, how this matriarchal cultures did not exist right in in europe but they 
exist in in America. And I'm talking mm -hmm. for the millionth time, America, the continent. If I talk about United States, I will say United States because as a name, America is a continent. So uh, this matriarchal cultures existed and, and still exists in some places of America. Do you think these people had an inkling of that? Do you think they knew because this was written after colonization? Uh, do you think that's why they got inspired or they just yeah, so, out of thin air? So yes and no, right? Like the particularly these like anthropological figures in the late 19th century, they have this weird relationship to colonized peoples where on the one hand, they're aware of these other cultures that exist on the other side of, you know, whatever the Atlantic Ocean. Um, they're aware that these cultures look radically different in certain ways from European cultures, but most of the time they've never interacted with these cultures directly. So they're reading secondhand accounts um, and often secondhand accounts that are embellished in drastic ways um, usually in racist ways, right? They're, they're secondhand accounts by scholars who came from Europe, interacted with these cultures, and then wrote some racist crap about how primitive they all are and took that back to Europe. And everyone back in Europe is taking those accounts as if they're you know, actual truth. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, everyone in Europe is looking at European history and drawing inferences based on European history, and then assuming that must be true of everywhere. So they're they're taking these secondhand accounts of American cultures, um, and then they're saying, okay, based on what I know about like ancient Greece, I'm going to decide that that overlays on top of the way that societies are structured in Mesoamerica, and like I'm going to decide that that's what American society looks like, even though I have never been to the Americas. So it's this weird sort of mix of like, to some extent, they were probably sort of aware of these other cultures and like matriarchal structures that existed outside of a European context, but they weren't really aware of the, the details or the specificities of what any of these cultures looked like. And a lot of the time they wrote about these cultures but they did it in a way where they sort of had a foregone conclusion. They, they decided that like, here's what, you know, primitive in scare quotes culture would look like. Here's what that would look like. And now I'm going to go read some account by some guy who went over to Mexico and wrote some stuff. And I'm going to cherry pick out quotes from that, that make it sound like that culture is the thing that I've already decided that it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that happened um, I had an apprentice not too long ago. We were talking about colonization and how they, the the Aztec religion is actually a regurgitation of what the colonizers believed that was the religion. And now we are trying to look back and why did the Mexica people did what they did and kind of like not reconstruct, but understand, right? And my apprentice was saying like well at least the colonizers here did it to us because in europe they did it to their own people you know they they colonize their own people they um christianized and and you know did all those things and then they went back like you say and tried to rewrite the past and that's why this book is so interesting because you're telling us like this is what they created which is not all bad but it's not all good 
but let's be conscious of where we're standing and why your dad will, will probably like this, uh, you know, in, in Catholic church, they tell you stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, do the sign of the cross. And cause I said so. And I had always wondered like, but why, what's behind it? Why do we do these things? And I think this book, uh, and I hope the comparison doesn't offend you, uh, is precisely that, you know, why we do this, why we say the goddess is this and that. And it's not necessarily that the beginnings or the sources are faulty, but let's understand why we do it, where the tradition comes from. Yeah, you know, like always, always be suspicious of people who are telling you because I said so. Because I said so is either code for I want power over you and I don't want you asking questions, or it's code for I don't know the answer, so I'm going to pretend that I do and I'm just withholding it. And yeah. neither of those is good. Neither of those is a good thing. So yeah, let's let's ask questions about why we do what we do and where it comes from. And also let's understand that like history is complicated and messy. And a lot of history, like when you go back and you look at it, there are lots of things in it that can make you really uncomfortable, right? And in particular, I think this conversation that we're having here about sort of the legacy of European colonization and this colonial attitude that was behind a lot of these like early texts that people were using to help build up a religion of the goddess, mm -hmm. like you know, let's not sweep that under the rug. Let's take a minute to really sit with how uncomfortable that is. Um, or, you know, the same thing, like, uh, I, I talk about in, over the course of the book, I talk about nine major texts mm -hmm. that helped influence goddess worship. And off the top of my head, I think six of those nine were written by men. Mm -hmm. And that's uncomfortable, right? Goddess worship, it's supposed to be like women, you know? Yeah. Um, and and it's uncomfortable to think about how patriarchal some of this stuff is in where it comes from. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's all bad or it all needs to be thrown out the window or like, you know, but it means that like we should be taking the time to sit with it and understand how messy it is. Yeah. Um, because I think having some of that perspective on the messy history, uh, for one thing, it helps us be better now. Um, but also for another thing, just helps us to understand that like the world doesn't exist in these clear cut divisions um, and everything we do, not just religion, but like everything has just this complicated legacy that we have to learn how to navigate. Absolutely. And speaking of women, I was surprised to not see like Maria Jimbutas or uh, Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin. You know, they're obviously the most modern ones. And I don't know if that's why you didn't go there. Um, but remembering, you know, how influential, influential, I can't say that, influential, uh, the work of Maria is you know, yeah. and to the modern gathers, I guess, because she didn't write a book. Well, so she has, she has a couple of books. Um, and uh, the language of the goddess is sort of her, her biggest book. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, like I mention it, it's in the bibliography of the book, but I don't talk about it in a whole lot of depth. Uh, Maria Gambutas is a fascinating figure, right? She's an archeologist who had this idea of sort of a, an ancient widespread prehistorical matriarchy. Um, and she was incredibly influential up through, uh, really up through the end of the nineties. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, a lot of her archeological claims, um, the archeological community tends to interpret that evidence differently than she did now. Uh, but she was so, so important for uh, sort of helping to bolster this movement um, and helping to provide uh, a feeling of legitimacy, a feeling of of rightness and appropriateness to the thing that modern goddess worshipers were doing. Uh, so she's she's such an important figure. Um, and yeah, I I she's in the the last chapter where uh, what happens sort of once you hit the 1970s, goddess religion explodes. And there are yeah. so many important people, important women in particular, who are doing all this work as ritualists, as historians, as archaeologists, that's sort of all coming together to make this space for uh, feminist spirituality. Uh, so the main book that I talk about in, in that chapter is The First Sex by Elizabeth Gold Davis. Uh, which is a book that people don't really read anymore. It's kind of been forgotten. Um, but that was uh, one of the first books that really sort of pulled up this this idea of ancient matriarchy that we saw way back in the 1860s and said, actually, like, this can be the basis of a modern feminism. This understanding of matriarchal society can be where we decide to plant our flag. Um, and then from her... We then get people like Maria Gambutas. We then get practitioners like Starhawk, incredibly important. Uh, Marco Adler, obviously, is incredibly important. Drawing Down the Moon is sort of one of the big texts that helped a lot of people come to goddess worship. Uh, we also get things like Dianic Wicca. We get, obviously, Selena Fox. Uh, so all of these incredibly important figures. There's just this massive boom that comes mm-hmm. out of, like, starting from the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you reach that point, um, like, the genie really is out of the bottle. And there are so many, like you say, you know, uncomfortable conversations that are brought around the goddess and, and the goddess worshiping and the goddess tradition, like you say, capital G goddess. And one of the most controversial once but thanks to this book actually I you helped me see him in a different perspective a little bit uh Alistair Crowley you know how influential and as a person who likes uh masonry and I I just so you know Jack what brought me back to paganism and uh, my early adulthood was the book um the Da Vinci Code Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people hate the Da Vinci Code, and I I knew about paganism, and I practiced um, and thought, if you will, paganism as a young teenager, but didn't really like got into capital paganism until I was here in the United States fifteen years ago, and the book, the the Da Vinci Code, got me back into it. So I I claimed that as part of somewhat a reality with the Freemasons and then the OTO and then from there to Wicca and then from there to Goddess. So I always claim that lineage, but Crowley, you know, he has this reputation of 
sexist, abusive. Some people even there say um, he used to like underage people. I don't know that to be a fact or not. And I love how you rescue the actual important parts of the ones that pertain to the goddess and how influential he was. Yeah, you know, Crowley, Crowley was a jerk. There's just no getting around that. Like, Crowley <laughs> was not it. someone that I would want to share polite company with. Um, and he was a sexist. There, again, there, there's really no question about that. But he was also a damn good ritualist. And he ended up connecting to something that was much bigger than himself. Um, and it wasn't all Crowley, right? I, I think a thing that people tend to forget because there's sort of this mystique around Aleister Crowley, is there were a lot of women involved in the magical work that was happening at that time, and he wasn't doing it all alone. Um, and the Book of the Law, which is the, the main Crowley text that I talk about, like that was revealed not just to Crowley, it was revealed to Crowley and his wife. And she was actually the one, to, like initially she was the one who went into trance and told him the god Horus is waiting for you. And that's what kickstarted the whole religion of Thelema. Crowley is important, there's no question about that, but so is Rose Edith Kelly, and people tend to forget about her. And, you know, you think about Thelema, and Thelema, I, I don't want to make any sweeping statements, because Thelema is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the, the principal deities that you encounter in Thelema are the goddess Nuit uh, and her consort, uh, and then the goddess Babylon and her consort. And these goddesses are so big and powerful and just limitless. And you read the poetry that Crowley wrote or that Crowley channeled about these goddesses in the words of these goddesses and you can't help feeling like he connected to something real and bigger than him and that even though Crowley himself was a jerk and no one in their right mind would deny that the goddesses themselves are still there and they shine through and it's like this it, it just reminded me about the cancel culture and another jerk <laughs> that I admire his work, uh, Kevin Spacey. I don't know why he's been in my head today. Um, Kevin Spacey, right? This person that like probably has been accused of this, that and the other. Um, and like you already dare say, a jerk. But the art, the art that they create, the art that they leave for history, I consider Kevin Spacey one of the greatest actors of our generation or my generation anyway and yet the person is someone that you will not want to make nice with uh how similar it is and how important for our culture and our religion that he Crowley brought in this perspective right of a cosmo cosmic goddess you know not yeah, just it's, earth it's i mean i think it's such a big and important and difficult question of what do you do with the work of monstrous men like like Oof. if you have if you have a man who has done anywhere on the range from like horrible 
irredeemable things up to maybe he was just like kind of an asshole to everyone around him. Like, you know, anywhere on that spectrum. But if you have someone that you you don't like, you don't approve of, you don't want to be associated with, someone you would morally condemn, who has still produced something that is beautiful and meaningful to you, and that maybe in some sense, you know, if you want to think about religion, um, it makes the world a better place. How do you navigate that? And I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> That's yeah. way above my pay grade. But I think it's a question that we all need to ask because again, like everything we do has this complex and muddy history and some of it comes from people that we don't necessarily like. Uh, and does that mean that you throw it all out? Does that mean that there, like you, people talk a lot about separating the art from the artist. I think there are times where you can do that and maybe times where you can't do that. Um, but sort of, all of that is just so challenging to navigate, but I think it's incumbent upon us to try. And I think an inevitable in this patriarchal world in which we live, men get a bigger dispensation than women. Because you cannot speak about the goddess and you cannot speak about goddess tradition without speaking about Susanna Budapest and the Dianic tradition, and this whole exclusionary garbage that is garbage, but is there. And all the work that she had done to lay out the modern movement and to uplift women for the first time in history in a religion that we can see, we as women can see ourselves and can see can relate to the divinity and and then she said what she said and then everything went to yeah i don't want to say yeah, that. and it's and it's so hard right because but, but we you like know you... what but we judge her in a harsher way like she has not been forgiven and yet crowley and others have been forgiven so it's like eh, the dichotomy it it is absolutely true that women are not given uh, the benefit of the doubt the way that men are. And that remains as true now as it ever was. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there there are figures like Z Budapest who, like you say, you know, the exclusionary stuff is garbage and there's no question about that. But also, my God, the goddess movement wouldn't be what it is without exactly. the work that she had been doing. Exactly. Um, and... You know, it's it's absolutely true that our society is so much more ready to forgive men, even in spaces like this that are supposed to be feminist spaces, empowering spaces, goddess worshiping spaces. Yeah. It's so hard to get out of that bias that we're just all taught to have, that men get a second chance. But if a woman does something bad once, that's the end of it. That's where we're, we're written off. And the thing is, um, and I think that's why this work, this book is a great work of unbiased looking into things. Because we need to learn from history. And we cannot judge, like you, you mentioned it in the book, I think in the conclusion, um, that even the words that we're using today will be judged with the lens of 10, 20, 50 years ahead of us. So 
it's not just about judging in a way that is detrimental, right? Like, like I'm not going to judge uh, the people in the 50s here in 2023 because they, they have different circumstances, different access to different things, different culture, even different access to like common knowledge, right? So we cannot judge them. We cannot judge the past with the knowledge of the present. We can critique it. We can look into it like you did in this book. So I think it's a good thing that we go back and critique, you know, like, I don't know, 10, 20 years from now, I my hope is that people like Z gets forgiven and that it's understood that where she comes from, that's where my mom comes from. It's from a place where you couldn't vote when you, you couldn't be a woman, you know? And even though we have gone ahead of time, uh, we had the Barbie movie making all this noise because, you know, how dare you treat Ken like a tool uh, feels weird, doesn't it? That's why we go through every day. We women in the real world are the Ken of the movie every day. So, you know, when you have this iconography when you have the goddess to rely on yes we're gonna latch into it and yes we're gonna try to quote-unquote defend it you know but now we know and we have all these wonderful young authors that you mentioned in the book that I'm like doing my homework to go read tell us a little bit about if you if you want to tell us about all of the other texts I don't want to give them away but if you want to mention all of the other texts that you studied for this book please do so yeah sure uh so i mean the the book is wide-ranging and it, i talk a little bit about uh some contemporary people who have written on the goddess um lasara firefox allen has a really wonderful book called jailbreaking the goddess uh which is about sort of taking a modern third wave intersectional feminist perspective on goddess religion and, and understanding the goddess in a new way um, I talk a lot about sort of historical texts in this book. So I start with Mother Right, which we've already talked about. And then I talk about the Golden Bough, uh, which was sort of this monstrous tome of like early anthropology that dealt with mythology and religion all around the world. I talk about Aradia, the Gospel of the Witches, which is an incredible source of inspiration. Uh, I talk about Aleister Crowley and Dion Fortune, Margaret Murray, who wrote The Witch Cult in Western Europe. I talk a little bit about uh, The White Goddess by Robert Graves, which is the bane of my existence. That book is such a mess. Um, but again, it's so important, like so significant for the development of, of the goddess movement. I talk a little bit about Wicca, and then I talk about sort of the development of uh, goddess religion and goddess witchcraft after Wicca was on the scene. And that's roughly the, the arc of the book. Um, and yeah, I, I love what you said about that distinction between judging and critiquing, right? We can look back at people in the past and say, okay, these people had views that we now consider harmful for any of a, a variety of reasons, right? These views are sexist and racist and essentialist and so on. And by the standards of today, we wouldn't consider these views acceptable. But we can make a choice for ourselves now not to hold those views and not to act on them and still understand 
that maybe, you know, even if by today these views are sexist and reactionary, by the standards of the 1920s, these views actually had something quite radical and liberating to offer. Um, and, you know, the feminism of the 1920s didn't look the same as the feminism of the 2020s. And, you know, you just reminded me, because, of course, we're talking about my favorite thing in the world, which is goddess culture and feminism. Um, when people sit down and and some, like, elevate Frida Kahlo, because she was such feminist and such radical icon for Mexican culture, and everybody forgot about all, all the other Mexican artists. And then some uh, modern feminists saying like, but Frida was trash because she was not a feminist. And who said, and I'm like, she was a feminist of the 1920s. She was not a feminist of 2023, you know, but I digress. There is a book that, thank you for listing the books because this opens the door for me to actually talk about Leland and the gospel of Aradia. One of my most favorite pieces of, work about the goddess because it marries activism with the goddess there's so many wonderful aspects of goddess culture goddess tradition goddess practice and i think uh marrying witchcraft and activism with the goddess is one of the most wonderful things that could have ever happened and who cares if it was real or not i don't care i don't care if it's real I don't care if the god the the witches existed or not. What I care is uh, the freedom to defend yourself and to say um, sometimes we just need this little permission for somebody to actually take the boot off our neck. You know, because sometimes we don't take the boot off our neck because nobody's given us permission to do it, and Aradia does. And and she comes and she says, you know, and, and the richest people, you know, screw their crops and make them poor and give them boils and all of that stuff. Um, and it is true for us, um, disenfranchised, Mesoamerican, colonized cultures, to through the understanding that if you're not cis white male, you are a minority, how? Uh, we are immigrants on our own continent. How? <laughs> There's so many things I don't understand. But this gave us something to latch on and to survive and to use magic for survival. And I will always love Leland for, for that. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And and just like you say, I don't I don't care whether there ever were these witches in Tuscany. What I care about is the message that the goddess is and always has been the liberator of the oppressed. And that that is an inescapable part of who she is. And if you are worshiping the goddess, you had damn well better be fighting for justice. And not only for the justice that benefits you. Yeah. But for the justice that benefits everybody, because I've said this once and I will say it again, when two minorities fight, the only one that wins is the oppressor. Mm -hmm. And I'm sick and tired of people fighting uh, the LGBT, LGB against the TQI or the Puerto Ricans against the Mexicans or the, you know, trans people and cisgender women. Like, they're, when we fight with each other, the only one that wins is the oppressor. 
And if we fill our mouth and like some people say, say with our, our chest that we are goddess worshipers, we cannot be misogynistic. We cannot be oppressing. We cannot use the power over. That is what we have done with some of our elders. You know what I'm talking about. So let's really revisit that this is power with and no power over and especially with, with some elders, but I digress. Um, and what a beautiful, I don't know, you do the fire for the goddess has never not been lit in me. But reading this book, you talk at some strings that I was like, wait a minute, what? But then I'm like, no, I love it. I love it. I love that you make us reflect in something that happens quite often with faith. When your faith is strong enough, that's when you have the biggest doubt. And I see that this book, and this is just my take, that it was not doubt as in you don't believe in God is what make you write the book. But it was this curiosity to like, but why? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? How long did it take you to prepare this book? Oh gosh. I mean, so the the I had been doing the reading and the research and the thinking that would become the book for years. And the 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 idea sort of like was in the back of my mind, and I kept going, like, no, 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 I could I couldn't do that. I couldn't write that book. You know? And when I finally did sit down and actually start writing it, I think it only took me like three or four months to write the first draft because it all just wanted to come out. It, it just like, this was a book that wanted to exist. It wanted to be in the world. And then there was editing and researching and, you know, um, contacting people and, and making sure that I wasn't just full of hot air. But the... I, I think by the time I got to the point of actually deciding to write the book, I had already done all of the, the reading and the research. And then I realized that that reading and research had been leading me toward writing this book. Um, so, so the actual writing process was very, very fast. What a wonderful path. And then obviously for folks that haven't got the book yet, uh, A, what are you waiting? And B, the book is obviously a, a deep study into the biography of the goddess. You go from the 1800, 1861 to 2023. Did you talk about things that happened in 2022? Um, but you also have like a gazillion exercises and rituals in this book. So it's not just a historical study on this text but it's also how to guide to incorporate everything that you pull out of this text into our practice tell us a little bit about that yeah i i wanted the book to be devotional because uh history is great history is important but at the end of the day we're all here to worship the goddess that's what we're here for and i wanted the book to be written with an eye to that so i wanted to give people things that they could do, rituals that they could perform that could take all of this abstract historical stuff and make it concrete and be like, okay, here's how that actually connects to worshiping her, right? We have this chapter about 
Alistair Crowley, that's all great. Now go do a ritual for the goddess based on what you've just learned about Alistair Crowley and the goddess and see how that changes your relationship with her. So I have rituals for every chapter and there's a ritual um, with a solitary variation and a ritual with a group variation. Um, some of the rituals are, you know, uh, there are a couple of places where you can tell that I wrote the group ritual first and then I was like, ah, crap, how do I write this for one person? <laughs> but um, even the solitary rituals, uh, it, like, it, you know, it, they're meant to be done, they're meant to be performed. Um, and even if you're doing it alone, it can still be a beautiful and powerful and moving experience. You just sometimes have to do things for yourself that it would be easier to have someone else doing with you. Um, and then on top of that, there are, you know, exercises and things to do. There's a recipe for a flying ointment in there. There's a, uh, a spell. Uh, I, I got in trouble with a couple of people because in the chapter on Aradia, the gospel of the witches, I include the spell with the lemon and pins, uh, which is a classic piece of Italian folk magic. And there are two versions of the spell, one of which is a blessing and the other of which is a curse. And I had some people who were mad at me because I included a curse in this chapter, but I'm like, like that's what the, the witchcraft is. How and did, especially they... the witchcraft of the gospel of the witches, right? Like it goes on and on about cursing your oppressors. Like, I would be lying to you if I said that that wasn't in there. Hey, I'm, I'm the one that has the oil that is called of the patriarchy. So I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. And like I always tell people, if you're not a pedophile and if you're not a rapist, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. Because, you know, most of us like to do power with and no power over, but there are times where we need to take take back the night like, like the ladies of the 70s did. And uh, what a wonderful... Um, rich book i really appreciate you writing this book and um time is of the essence i cannot believe it's already uh we're already almost on top of the hour so let me remind you uh, jack and everybody who's listening uh just a quick commercial if you will that uh you're listening to lunatic mondays on csmp the circle century naval podcast we have over 950 hours of podcasts that are there for you to download, listen, and share. Um, and the shows that we have throughout the week, we have Circle Talk two Tuesdays a month with uh, Deborah Rose. Uh, one Wednesday a month, we have Circle of Nature with Selena Fox. One Friday a month, we have Blue Marble with Charlotte Bear. Two Fridays a month, we have Song of the Pagan Tribe with Current Green Men. And every Saturday, we have Paganos del Mundo or Pagaos do Mundo with Christian Ortiz, Carolina Moore, Monica Govin, uh, Petrusia Finkler, Harwetu Leva, and yours truly, Laura Gonzalez. And then two Mondays a month, we have Lunatic Mondays with the one and only Laura Gonzalez. So uh, head over to Blog Talk Radio or iTunes. I, I think it's now called Apple, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are being picked up here and there. Um, and if you haven't followed us on Facebook, please come to Facebook to the CSM podcast page, and you can find everything and anything about all of the podcasts, 950 hours. And it's all done. 
it's a labor of love is like like you being here it's a labor of love so thank you so much for being here um what's next with you what uh, any other books on the warmer or any tours what's happening yeah so i'm I'm not making any promotional appearances or going to any festivals anytime soon um i am in the process like i've just begun another book uh so that's not going to be out for uh, quite a while but i i've started another book and it's another tarot book uh so i'm really excited about that one and yeah in the meantime just uh trying to do magic and worship the goddess and live life that is wonderful that is wonderful i personally thank you so much for um this book it really is going to be a must for my apprentices and colleagues i already told a couple of people like you need to get this book and you need to read this um and folks, I invite you to not judge the past with the knowledge of the presence, but go critique it and learn why we do what we do. Uh, because we're not a religion that just say, because I said so, but we are a practice of power with and uh, radical inclusiveness and love. Love. I don't know. There's There's so much love in this religion and this practice i love that you said like three times that we're here to worship the goddess in this planet i i like that because she's on everything and on everybody but anyway thank you so much for being on the show is there anything that i haven't asked you that you need to tell us i don't think so it's been such a good conversation thank you so like the the, the hour has just flown by i can't believe we're done already it literally has flown back because we both are very passionate about the goddess and you know that's what happened when you're having fun so thank you so much for having said yes and thank you again marcus ironwood for suggesting this wonderful book uh and the folks of Llewellyn for sending me the book one day i will meet you in person and i will have your signature in the book but then, thank you so much for being on the show and i leave you the microphones so you can say good night and good night to your audience thank you all so much for listening uh it's been a real pleasure and yeah i hope to meet you sometime soon likewise likewise we have to worship the goddess together one of these days and talk about uh miss american goddesses and all that all right so thank you everybody for being here uh my name is laura gonzalez and until we meet again mwah, never forget that you are love bye-bye
Lunatic Mondays is a production of Laura Gonzalez for CSN Podcasts, building bridges of community around the world. Thank you for joining us on the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast presented by Circle Sanctuary and produced for all who follow nature-centered paths. Join us throughout the week for various programming connecting with the community around the world. Please don't forget to watch for updates on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash CSN podcasts. We can also be found on your favorite podcast hosting sites such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. Until next time, many blessings. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.